Now, if you'll turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, that's where I'm eventually going to land this morning, but we need to do a little bit of review and catch up. As you recall, uh, the past two weeks, Palm Sunday and Easter, we've had special messages, but before that, we were in our study called Eat This Book, where we're going through the Bible systematically and looking at each book in summary. But before we had those two special services, uh, we were in uh, Joshua. We were learning about this leader that God had appointed to follow Moses as Israel's political, military, and spiritual leader. And the last few verses of the book of Joshua tell us that Israel served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and had experienced everything the Lord had done for Israel. You see, as long as Joshua was alive, he was the spiritual leader that people followed. And it's not to say that they never sinned, they never did anything wrong, but they kept their accounts short. He always reminded them to come back in repentance to the Lord. But after he died, there were some men that had served under him as elders. And as long as those men were alive, Israel continued to follow the Lord. But once those men had died, that's when we begin to see a spiritual vacuum form. And what, what do we see that happens is written in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 12. Then the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. They forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of Egypt. They followed and worshipped various gods of the people around them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. Now, if you're not an Old Testament scholar, perhaps you're asking the question, what are Baals? Is that somebody's last name? You know, they, they served these people with the last name Baal. Uh, what that's actually talking about, it can be one of two things. It can either be specifically a false god named Baal that was served by the people around those uh, the children of Israel and Canaan, or it could be just in general the false gods because there were many that those nations followed. And so that's what God was saying is, and, and he was very specific, wasn't he? When, when Moses brought down the Ten Commandments from Mount Sinai, one of those commandments was, you shall have no other gods before me. And yet that's exactly what the people had done. And that's why it says they provoked the Lord to anger. And this is going to begin a cycle. The cycle is that Israel is unfaithful to God, They are living in sin without repentance, and that leads to God's judgment, bringing about their servitude. In other words, another nation will come in and conquer them, and they will end up as slaves to this other nation, and they'll live that way for a while, and then they'll think, you know what? It wasn't like this when we were following God. Maybe we just need to get back to God. Let's ask him to forgive the things that we've done, and he would hear their prayer. And he would raise up a leader, a judge. And he would come as a military leader to uh, free them from their enemies. And then he would be their spiritual leader. And we're told that as long as that judge was alive, the people would continue to follow God. And then the judge would die, and the cycle would repeat. Now, as I was reading through that, I thought, you know, this probably after... Two or three times, you would think the people of Israel would start to pick up on this cycle. 
and realize, you know what? Every time we live in sin, we end up as slaves. And then how long is it that we have to live like this before we realize we need to get right with God again? But they don't pick up on that. And it's not two or three times. The times that it's recorded in the Bible, which could be all of them or maybe it's not, 15 times they go through this cycle. All through the book of Judges, even into the beginning of 1 Samuel. And I want to give you uh, the first written example that we have. This is from Judges chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. This is the first judge that we're told about who uh, was raised up after Joshua and the elders died. It says, The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God, and they served the false gods. The anger of the Lord burned against Israel so that he sold them into the hands of the king of Aram to whom the Israelites were subject for eight years. But when they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer, Othniel, Caleb's younger brother, who saved them. Now, does that name ring a bell? Let me take you back in time just a little bit. Moses is about to lead the children of Israel into the promised land, and the first thing they do is they put together 12 spies, one from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And All 12 of them go in, and they're looking around, they're scouting things out. They all come back with the same report. This is a wonderful place. They described it as a land flowing with milk and honey. But 10 of them then left from that great report and said, but there are lots of people there, and they're not willing to give up their land. They're fierce warriors. And the way they described it was, and we are like grasshoppers in their eyes. But two of the spies said, sure, there's lots of big people in there, and they're they're militarily fierce, but our God is greater and bigger and stronger, and so we need to go and do what he said and take over. And those two spies that gave that report were Joshua and Caleb. And now we see God raises up Caleb's little brother, Othniel, to be the first judge after Joshua dies. It says that the Lord gave the king of Aram into the hands of Othniel, who overpowered him so that the land had peace for 40 years until Othniel, son of Canaz, died. So there's that cycle that's beginning. That's going to repeat itself throughout the book of Judges. I want to take you now, if you're in your Bibles in First Samuel, turn to chapter 8. This is where we're going to see the last of the judges before we start to see kings over Israel. And this was a very good judge. His name was Samuel. But by this time in the story, he's quite old. And as he looks back over the history of Israel, he sees this pattern. And he realizes every time that Israel does not have a spiritual leader, they fall into sin and they stay there. And so he decides, instead of having that period, I'm just going to appoint the next judges, and they're going to be my sons. Now, the problem is, is that everybody knew that these were not godly men. In verse 3 of chapter 8, it says, But his sons, Samuel's sons, did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Now, it can't get any worse than that, right? You've got people who are appointed to be the leaders of your country, and it says that they're turned aside towards dishonest gain, 
they accept bribes, and they pervert justice. Well, who wants leaders like that? So the elders come to Samuel and ask, maybe demand, a king, like all the nations. Now, this sounds like a good request because we're already been told that these two sons of Samuel's are not good or godly men, but God reveals what the real motive was, and that was that they wanted to be like everybody else. In verse 7 it says, uh, this is God speaking, he says, It is not you, Samuel, that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. That was God's plan all along. Not that they would be a kingdom or a democracy, but what's called a theocracy, that God would be the king of Israel. But they've rejected him. And also, how many times have you ever known everybody's doing it to work out well? It doesn't, does it? When we want to be like the world, like everyone else, and reject God's ways, we're heading towards ruin. So they start this search looking for this king, and the search leads them to a man named Saul. And let's look at some of his qualifications. This is in chapter 9, verse 2. It says, There was a man named Kish who had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anyone else. So let me review for you his qualifications as a leader. He's really good-looking, and he's extremely tall. And the third thing is, oh, that's right, there is no third thing. He's just tall and good-looking. Doesn't say anything about his relationship with God. Nothing about his ability to judge, to make a decision, or to lead people. It says nothing about his military ability, either as a soldier or as a leader. All it says is that he was good-looking and tall. Let me show you some examples of what tall and good-looking got Israel. First of all, as a military leader, turn over to chapter 17, same book. This is the story of David and Goliath. Now, even if you're not real familiar with the Old Testament, just about everybody knows who David and Goliath are. And what did we just learn about Saul? He's, he's taller, right? He, you measure from the ground up to his shoulders, and that's the tallest that anybody in the nation of Israel came next to him. So he's head and shoulders taller than anybody else. What do we know about Goliath? It's a giant, right? So he's probably at least two feet taller than the tallest man who's head and shoulders in Israel. So let's read this, beginning at verse 8. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel. This is when I put on my Goliath voice for you. Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come out, come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, and I picture him now turning back to the other soldiers and winking, if he's able to kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistine's words, let me just read this how it probably should read. On hearing the Philistine's words, the Israelites were dismayed and terrified, but Saul tried to encourage them to fight with God on their side. Is that what it says? Not even close, is it? 
And do you notice the way that the, the order in which this is worded? Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So what did Saul do when Israel needed a military leader? He ran to his tent, closed the flap, and waited for somebody else, one of his soldiers, to go out and take up this challenge. And I can actually picture if you went to that tent, you'd see the tent shaking like this as Saul's in there quivering in his boots. What about as a leader of people? Go back a couple of chapters to chapter 14. This is, again, a military experience here that we're looking at. Saul is out chasing one of his enemies, and I think he's trying to make himself look good and and boast about how he's going to capture this guy. And so let me read to you what he says here, starting in verse 24. Now the men of Israel were in distress that day because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be any man who eats food before the evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. Now, this isn't like Israel just had their afternoon tea and and they have to go without dinner before Saul catches somebody. This is like we've been fighting hand-to-hand combat all day, haven't had anything to eat, and our general tells us that we can't eat anything until he captures whoever he's after. So none of the troops tasted food. The entire army entered the woods, and there was honey on the ground. And when they went into the woods, they saw the honey oozing out, yet no one put his hand to his mouth because they feared the oath. But Jonathan, this is uh, Saul's son, the crown prince, and a godly man, he had not heard that his father had bound the people with the oath, so he reached out the end of his staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb. And he raised his hand to his mouth, and his eyes brightened. Now, what does that mean, his eyes brightened? That just means that his strength was revived. He hasn't eaten anything either. And so he eats this honey, and his strength is revived. His eyes are brightened. Then one of the soldiers told him, Jonathan, your father bound the army under an oath saying, Cursed be any man who eats food today. And that's why the men are faint. And Jonathan, this godly man, says, My father has made trouble for the country. Well, how about as a spiritual leader? How does Saul rank as a spiritual leader? Turn over one chapter to chapter 15. This again, once again, we're looking at a military situation Saul is at battle with the enemies of Israel. God is going to give very specific instructions to Saul through the prophet Samuel on how he is to do this. Beginning at the uh, verse 1, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says, I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go and attack the Amalekites. And here it is. This is the very specific instructions. Totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women, children and infants, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers, 10,000 men from Judah, And Saul went to the city of Amalek and set an ambush in the ravine. 
Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt, and he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people he totally destroyed with the sword. But Saul and the army spared King Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak they totally destroyed. So we see that Saul obeyed partially and when it was to his advantage to do so. And we're also going to see that Saul lied. Go to verse 13. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, The Lord bless you. I, I picture this as, you know, he's still a long ways off, and Saul is so, or so nervous about being caught in this disobedience that he's yelling across the field to Samuel and kind of running towards him, Hey, the Lord bless you, and I've totally obeyed everything the Lord said. Now, did anybody even ask him that? Yet he's so anxious to tell this lie to cover what he's done. And, you know, I picture this as when Saul is trying to tell this story, you know, what we have here, Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? I don't think it's quite that calm when Samuel says it. And, and actually, as uh, Saul is uh, saying these words, I hear it this. This is the way I hear it. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord, bless you. the Lord bless you. I've done exactly what... That's the way my mind works. He obeyed when it was to his advantage, and he lied. And then he blames his soldiers, the people that he's responsible for leading. Verse 19, why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Pounce on the plunder. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went to the mission on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed, destroyed the Amalekites and brought back King Agag, their king. The soldiers took the sheep and the cattle from the plunder. What do we call that in today's language? Throwing somebody under the bus? Yeah. King Saul threw his army under the camel, right? He tried to deflect the blame. He tries to justify his actions. And then he tries to minimize the seriousness of it. He's rationalizing. Let me read the, the, those verses through completion. But I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back the king. The soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plunder the best of which was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. It's almost like he's making this stuff up on the fly. Uh, by the way, it was their fault, uh, but we did it so that we could do a really cool sacrifice to God. And by the way, did you notice the way that he says this? Sacrifice them to the Lord your God. Not Saul's God. I think that's telling. 
Well, here is the key verses in this passage in my mind. Verses 22 through 23. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Now, that's not a a word that we use very often, heed. You know, if I want to talk to Ron and he's walking down the hallway, I don't say, hey, Ron, heed me. But what it means is, listen to me and follow through on what I'm saying. That's what parents want from their children, right? Heed me. Not just hear my words, but follow through on what I'm saying. That's what teachers want. Don't just hear the instructions. Follow through on what I'm saying. For rebellion is like the sin of divination and arrogance, like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. Now, was this message just for Saul? Was this lesson just something he needed to learn? Or, heaven forbid, is it something that you and I need to learn as well? Is this for us? Partial obedience is really only disobedience that we try to make look acceptable. Is there an area in your life where you're being partially obedient? I'm going to give a few examples, and I want you to think through this with me. Have you ever taken home a pad of paper, a highlighter, some post-it notes from the office for your own personal use? One in ten U.S. workers surveyed don't believe that taking office supplies for their own use is wrong. And of those under the age of 30, 17% not only do it, but they're unapologetic about it. Have you ever justified telling a lie to somebody to make your life easier? One study found that people tell two to three lies every ten minutes. Now, I don't think those are like perjury lies. I think they're what we try to classify as white lies, things that that are going to make life easier for us. Have you ever put something on a resume or an application that was an embellishment? A survey of 2,500 hiring managers found that 56% of all applicants lie on their resumes. You know, when I put that into a search engine this week, what the first thing that came up was this quote, I bought fake job references on the Internet, and it worked. And the three Internet sites that came up immediately with that search was uh, careerexcuse.com, the reference store, and virtual employer, all made so that you can pay a price to have somebody make up a job history for you to put on your resume. I hope you weren't writing those down. (laughs) Maybe you need to know that you need to put more effort into your relationship, and yet it's easier just to turn on the TV and watch the game. Or have you convinced yourself not to share your faith or to invite somebody to church out of fear of being rejected or looking foolish? I would guess that all of us fit into that category probably much more often than we would like to admit. 
Let me share with you a story about uh, somebody that kind of fits into that. Uh, I'm going to read this as first person, but it's not my story. I had walked into Denny's planning on having a peaceful dinner so that I can go back to church to serve in the Welcome Center. At least that was the plan until I saw Ed sitting at a table not far from where I was eating my dinner. Ed was the mail carrier that delivered mail to our church where I also work. He was well known on our staff as being an extremely helpful and a nice guy. However, he didn't believe in God, nor did he seem to care very much about the subject. It was a few weeks before Easter, and our church always hands out flyers to an outreach event that we have every year. So halfway through my meal, I'm beginning to feel the Holy Spirit convict me and tell me I need to go tell Ed about this and to give him a flyer. But I was terrified to do so. As I was thinking about how best to approach Ed, I thought of all the possibilities of how things could go. He could think I was a weirdo. He could take the flyer and tear it up right in front of my face, because that happens all the time, right? I could feel really stupid if he asked me a question and I didn't know the answer to it, and then he would think that all Christians were dumber than bricks. I don't want to be that guy that keeps Ed out of the kingdom because I couldn't answer his questions. So he's starting to justify, right? So he's starting to feel like this chicken, and he knows that God wants him to tell this man, Ed, about the Easter service. So I reached the conclusion that it was better to not face Ed, but to find another way to give him the flyer. So if I wasn't going to give Ed the flyer, the least that I could do was to put it in the door of his car. You know, that way he could see the flyer, and who knows, maybe the Holy Spirit would use it to, uh, even though I was a Christian chicken, paralyzed with fear. So I paid for my dinner, took the flyer that I had, and went to Ed's car. Ed was sitting near the window, and he was able to see his car through the window at Denny's. I went over there and tried to put the flyer in the door handle, but it wouldn't stay. So I tried to put it, you know, kind of wedge it in the rubber of the window, and it wouldn't stay there either. And as I'm trying to figure out how to make this flyer stick, I hear somebody yell out, Hey, what are you trying to do to my car? So, of course, he justifies in his mind that the best thing to do is to run. So he takes off, and by the time he figures out that Ed isn't chasing him, he sits down on the sidewalk, and he's breathing heavy, and he's wondering how in the world did this evangelistic approach end up looking like Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> now, do any of you here think that you could star in this drama of evangelistic effort gone wrong? Maybe you're looking for an idea of how to turn that possibility possibility into a chance to tell somebody about Jesus, maybe to share with them that no life is beyond God's redemption or that no marriage is beyond hope. Well, if you take your bulletin and open it, take your bulletin, that's right, it's participatory, isn't it? This is how I know you're still awake. And right there on the right-hand side, is this picture of Jeff Allen, a comedian. You heard Jason tell you about it this morning. He is a very funny comedian, but he also has, that he will be sharing with us uh, towards the end of that night, uh, a very great um, testimony of how God kept him from throwing his life away. He was 
a substance abuser. He was an atheist. He had worked kind of diligently at destroying his marriage, and yet God redeemed all of those things. So you can uh, look at that. Actually, I have a clip here for us to watch just so that you know that he's as funny as I'm telling you he is. Let's go ahead and show that. This event is taking place a week from this Saturday at 7 o'clock right here in this building, actually in this room. And it's a great opportunity for you to invite uh, friends, family, coworkers, neighbors, anybody that you think not only could use uh, some laughter, and who can't use that, right? But also somebody that could benefit from hearing this testimony. And again, we can all benefit from that. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 3.15 said, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. I believe that this comedy event is just one example that I can give you of how you can invite somebody to hear the good news. And maybe this afternoon you can take that little postcard that was in your bulletin if it didn't fall out on the way in. And you can go uh, in your neighborhood and and jam that in somebody's car window. (laughs) But let's take this opportunity. Um, It's an easy way for us to invite somebody to hear the gospel.